Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Our scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a rivaler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what I have to do with judging those also who are outside. Do not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Good evening once again, Great Church. It's good to see all of you here tonight. Uh, It's just been a wonderful Lord's Day. for, For me it has been. I hope it has been for you as well. Uh, A couple of things I want to say before we begin, and that is that our Thursday men's lunch from 1130 to 1230 resumes this week, and uh, we're going to have sub sandwiches and chips that will be supplied for our kickoff, so all of our men that are not otherwise on the time clock somewhere, and if you can ditch for an hour, we'd love to have you here too. But all of our men who can get away, but some anytime, doesn't have to be the whole time, between 1130 and 1230 Thursday, kicks off again this week, and that would be a good thing. Another thing. Uh, we just had uh, another a new sister added to the family this afternoon in the 5 o'clock hour, Leah Tab-Tab Enzi, which some of you have got to meet. Would you raise your hand or stand and let everybody see where you are over there? Okay. She happens to uh, hang out with Nick Bryan a lot, and uh, so you may have seen the two of them together around here, but I'm just excited. She put on Christ in baptism today, and uh, welcome to the family. So very happy. All right, good, good stuff. Those are the kind of announcements that everybody likes to hear and I certainly like to make. And so our text this evening is in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. So let's uh, let's look at this passage together for just a little bit this evening. Uh, Paul the Apostle begins, and, and those of you that are here last Sunday night worshiping outside, we... Uh, This passage kind of picks off right where that one left off. Paul says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, first of all, Paul wrote some letters that uh, did not make it into the canon. And this is one of them. There were probably four letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. One before our 1 Corinthians, one between 1 and 2 Corinthians, which Paul in 2 Corinthians calls a painful letter. So apparently that one was really sharp. 
And then 2 Corinthians came most likely last. And uh, so, you know, the Holy Spirit was overseeing the process of completing the canon. And for some reason, he saw to it that some of the letters were saved and some weren't. But we know that the end result is that everything that pertains to life and godliness, this is what we're told in 2 Peter 1, everything that pertains to life and godliness has been revealed to us through the completed canon of Scripture. And so Paul, you know, talks about the fact that there had been other letters, but these are the ones that the Holy Spirit has chosen uh, to keep. Now, the first half of 1 Corinthians 5, we talked about last week, uh, Paul started talking about a brother, a member of the congregation there, who was in a serious state of adultery and what the congregation needed to do about it. And so Paul is going to begin to kind of explain the thought process behind it. He said he has told the church not to associate with sexually immoral people. But he recognized that his previous letter was not, uh, was not comprehensive enough and given the full uh, explanation, and maybe that's why the Spirit didn't include it in the canon. But we have this here. Paul says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. In other words, you can't live in this world without having some kind of association with sexually immoral people because they're all around us everywhere. We go to school with them, we work with them, they're in our families, they're in our neighborhoods, our communities. Well, there's sexual immorality all around us and God is not asking us to do the impossible. And of course, it goes without saying that they're greedy people and swindlers and idolaters and all of these things as well. And so Paul is saying, that's not what I'm not telling you to leave this earth, but he's saying that there are some boundaries that as Christians we need to respect and we need to enforce in our lives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33, the Apostle Paul says, evil companionships corrupt good morals. And, uh, and he will say that later in this letter. But he's already laying the groundwork here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that is going to lead to uh, that, that statement later. He's laying the groundwork for it. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 2, God told Moses to speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And we find the apostle Peter in his letters, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 in particular, quoting Leviticus 19 and verse 2 and applying that to the church. And he quotes directly Leviticus 19 too, but he also adds the word, in all of your conduct, all of your behavior, be holy. So he just, he fulfills that Old Testament passage by expanding and giving a specific application of it. And so, brothers and sisters, we are, as members of the body of Christ, called to maintain a certain kind of separation from the world. In order to better explain, I guess, Jesus' doctrine that Paul's words in 1 Corinthians, uh, both chapter 5 and chapter 15, are based upon, let's look for just a moment at John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verses 14 through 19. This happens to be during Jesus' high priestly prayer um, in the uh, Garden of Gethsemane before he is going to be betrayed. And so in John chapter 17, beginning in verse 14, we have these words from Jesus as he's praying to God the Father. He says, I have given them, that's his disciples, your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. 
They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, that is, make them holy by your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus prays to God the Father. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. And so these passages teach us that there are some real boundaries, like the boundary between the states of Tennessee and Alabama. They're not imaginary lines. They, you may not actually see the line in every place on the ground, but it's on the map. But when you step across from Tennessee and into Alabama, you stepped into an inferior place. <laughs> Sorry for those of you that are from Alabama or anything. I'm just kidding. But no, there's neither one that's inferior to the other. I love Alabama. I went to school in Alabama. I think it's a great place. Heritage Christian University, my alma mater. I'm very proud to be a heritage man. But that boundary is real. It's real. The governments are different. Many of the laws are different. It's a different place. It's a different state. And so you're either in Tennessee or Alabama. I guess you could straddle the line and be in both places at once. But the line is real. And of course, you know, no trespassing signs about where people are saying there's a boundary here. This property belongs to somebody, and this somebody doesn't want you on their property, and that's exactly what that means, okay? And so boundaries are a real thing in our world, and they abound, and we like some of them and some of them we don't. But Paul is talking about in this passage that if you're going to be a Christian, to be saved by grace, consider Titus 2, 11, and 12. I won't quote it, but just consider what it says about being saved by grace. Grace demands repentance, and it teaches us to live according to certain rules that God has given to us. And our willingness to obey the words of Christ as revealed in the New Testament, fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so the whole biblical teaching, it presents boundaries that we're called by God to respect. And these boundaries around sexual immorality and around the, the proper mindset about money and respect for other people and the avoidance of idolatry and all of its forms, these are real boundaries. And if you find yourself on the wrong side of these boundaries, you find yourself on the wrong side of God. And so it's extremely important that we recognize these boundaries. And so Jesus has said, we can't go out of the world until we die or until he comes again. But we are to maintain our separation from it. And so Paul is saying in this context, I'm not saying for you to come out of the world. I'm saying to, to abstain from partaking in and participating in evil. But now he begins again to make an even uh, more specific application of this principle beginning in verse 11. He says, but now, yeah, my former letter didn't tell you everything I wanted you to know. But now I'm writing to you, giving you clarity uh, to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Now, you know what he means. A baptized believer, a fellow member of the Lord's church. If there is someone who has taken on the name of Christ, if they've been baptized into Christ, if they are claiming to be Christians. So if anyone bears the name of brother, if he or she is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Notice how clear this boundary is. Not even to eat with such a one. I talked about last Sunday night how important it is that the church be kept pure according to the teachings of Scripture. And this means that the Bible's teaching on church discipline is extremely important. But I want you to understand that there are some complications. 
that come from this passage. Some unfortunate situations that some members of the Lord's church find themselves in. We're taught as the rule, this is the rule, there are some exceptions to it, but this is the rule. The rule is if there's a brother or sister in Christ who is rejecting repentance and walking willfully in sin, continuing willfully in sin, that we are not to have anything to do with them. We're to be separate from them, to maintain our holiness and our purity separate from them. But there are some overlapping circles that we find ourselves in in life. And if we're not careful, we will find ourselves pitting one passage against another, claiming the scriptures contradict themselves, which of course is not true. Now I will not go this evening into the doctrine of graded absolutism, but the Bible absolutely functions as graded absolutism. And what that means in the simplest way I can tell you is that God's rules are absolute. God's teachings are absolutely true. His doctrine is absolute. Everything that God has said is right, and we are called to live by and obey all of it. But there are some commandments that are more important than others, more fundamental than others. And when we find ourselves, like Rahab the harlot did, in a situation where we're sort of in a, 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 a straight betwixt two, Paul would say, or caught between a rock and a hard place, as we like to sometimes say, we're going to go with whatever commandment of God, if we're forced to choose between two seemingly at odds commandments, we're going to go with the more fundamental, the more basic, the more uh, essential, we might say, commandment of God. Now, the church is in the world, but it is not of the world. It is for the world. For the sake of reaching into the world and where we overlap the world, we're called to overlap it with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Striving to teach people the truth that they might be saved. Family is sometimes in the church, of the church, sometimes in the world of the world. But the Bible teaches us that we have certain obligations to family that we have to respect and we have to keep. I want you to look at 1 Peter chapter 3 with me just for a moment. Bear with me as I turn there. But 1 Peter chapter 3 and just look at the first two verses of that chapter. I want to make sure that you understand I'm telling you the truth about how to properly understand these passages. So uh, 1 Peter 3 beginning at verse 1. Wives likewise be submissive to your own husbands that even if some do not obey the word they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. That is respect. All right. Now the passage doesn't say if, if any wives have heathen husbands, unbelieving husbands, it just says if there are any Christian women whose husbands don't obey the word, who are disobedient, this is what they're called to do. There may be circumstances in which the church, going through the proper steps and the proper processes, has been forced to withdraw fellowship from a brother in Christ's sake. And as the church, and as a member of the church, then the sister that may be married to that husband is called to respect the decision of the elders of the church or of the church as a whole in the absence of elders and, and is to abide by that decision as much as is practically possible in her life. But she is not thereby authorized to divorce that man simply because he won't obey the word of God. She's called to continue to be a good wife to that man. And if this had been written different, we could say the exact same things about a husband toward a wife who had been withdrawn from, withdrawn from by the church. So it's not a male-female thing. It's an either-or thing. And so that wife is going to respect the decision of the church, 
But she is going to continue to do what the Bible teaches her to do in the hope of being an agent of the church in that man's life to bring him to repentance. She's going to continue to be what the Bible teaches that she ought to be as a wife. And I hope that makes sense. As many of you know, uh, sisters in Christ that have had husbands that have uh, been philanderers off and on, those who have been drunkards for years of, of, of time, who have not been in the church and faithful to the church, and yet they have continued to do their wifely duty. And the opposite has been true as well. Husbands whose wives have been disobedient to the faith. And they've, been, they've continued to uphold that proper relationship in the home because it's a different sphere, but it overlaps the sphere of the church. And therefore, it creates complication. And so, the church is called to do what the church is called to do. And that sometimes creates some difficult and strange and uncomfortable and, and complex relationships between people that are members of families. Uh, but it is nevertheless what we're called to do. And I hope that makes sense. So the rule is, if there is, of course, a member of the church, a baptized believer, who renounces repentance and is living openly in sin, then the process of church discipline is supposed to take place in order to bring that person to repentance. That does not mean that family ties are broken, though it does mean that they may be strained. And I hope that makes sense. And so we continue then the passage. For what have I to do with judging outsiders. This is a sobering statement because I think it's very easy for us and tempting for us as Christians to live in a constant state of judgment upon those who are not in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the passage does not teach us that we should not discern the difference between truth and error. Of course we should. But it simply teaches us that it's not the church's job to go out into the world and condemn people to hell all over the place, as if that's going to save people's souls. It's a very rare situation, and I thank God when this has been done poorly or wrongly, when it nevertheless, by the power of the Holy Spirit, results in someone coming to Christ. But most of the time, when the church presents itself to the world as its judge, the world is turned off and turned away. and turns off the message of the gospel. That's not what God wants. The church is in, I mean, the world is in sin already. And the church's very existence within the world is itself a testimony to that. We don't need to be heaping shovels full of judgment upon the world in order to prove what is already evident or ought to be. What the church is called to do is reach out to the world with love, with truth, with good news. To, to reach out to the world with the example of living the Christian life that we've been called to live. Because what people in the world are looking for, listen, what the open-minded, what the good-hearted, what the honest in the world are looking for, and those are the only ones we're going to reach anyway. What they're looking for is the answer to their problems in life. What they're looking for is the good and righteous path. What they're looking for is the truth. And they're going to find that from a friend a whole lot easier than they're going to find it from a judge. What they need to see is people living the solution. Man. That's what they need to see. People living the solution so that they can look into churches like this one. And I'm very proud to say, and I hope in the right kind of pride, but I'm real proud to say that people can look into this church and they're not going to see a bunch of self-righteous people that think they're perfect. This is not what they'll find here. But I know for a fact that when people look in this church, they're going to see some real, genuine followers of Jesus that love him and love each other and that will love them too if they'll give us an opportunity. And I believe people whose hearts are open to the truth, are going to be drawn by that. And I think this is what Paul's trying to get across. 
He says, God judges those outside. So within the church, purge the evil person from among you. That's the commandment of the Lord. And so just before we're done this evening, I want to talk about judging and about church discipline very, very quickly. Judging and church discipline. So let's look at Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at Matthew and John and 1 Corinthians under uh, the subject of judging. And I just want you to see the balanced teaching in Scripture about this. We're not contradicting ourselves. We're simply taking in the whole of the, the biblical canon together and everything it says. And we're seeing that these are complementary statements. One builds upon the other. So Matthew chapter 7 verses 1 through 6 is right in the heart of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You know Matthew 7, verse 1, I, most people in the world do. Judge not that you be not judged. Now, that's one of the most quoted passages in the Bible, but very few people go on to verse 2. So let's go on to verse 2 and listen. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And so judgment comes in all kinds of forms. You're a generous person. The proverb says a generous man will be blessed in what he does, and he who waters will himself be watered. Are you a stingy person? Well, when God decides to dish out the blessings, he's going to bless generous people more, and he's going to bless stingy ones. That's the way it is. If you're harsh with people in your judgments, God's going to be harsh with you. This is why the scripture says mercy triumphs over judgment, because if you're merciful, God's going to be merciful. That's the way he does things, and it's what you deserve. That's justice, see. Verse 3, and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye, or beam, some versions say? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do you see what he says there? He's not saying don't ever judge anything. He's saying judge rightly, judge fairly. It's all right to remove a speck from your brother's eye. Just make sure you don't knock him in the head with the beam jutting out of yours when you try to do it. I hope that illustration makes sense. It's kind of a funny picture, but that's what Jesus wants it to be. So we can see how silly it is, the way that some people in this world judge. How self-condemning it is, the way some people judge. Now listen to what he says in verse 6. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. He's not really talking about dogs, and he's not really talking about pigs. These are Jewish idioms for unclean people, immoral people. The Gentiles in their world, unbelievers from the Christian perspective. Not just unbelievers, but wicked ones that have no interest whatsoever in the truth. How do you know when a man or a woman are wicked and they want nothing to do with God's truth and they'll hurt you with it if you try to tell, tell it to them? Well, I guess you've got to make a judgment call, right? You've got to make a judgment call. Romans, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 is one of the most misused passages in all of the Bible. Context, context, context. Let's go to John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I want you to see what Jesus says in John chapter 7 and verse 24. Uh, John chapter 7 and verse 24. Because he's going to word uh, what he says about judgment in just a slightly different way. He says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge. Notice, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. You see, that's what Jesus means in Matthew 7, and that's what he outright says in John 7, 24. 
Now we saw in a previous lesson in our 1 Corinthians series, chapter 4, verse 5, where Paul says this, Do not pronounce judgment, that is, heaven or hell. Do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord returns, who will bring the secret things into the open and will disclose the intentions of the hearts. And so the boundary we have, as far as judging is concerned, is that we are forbidden to pronounce final judgment upon anyone under any circumstances at all. If the Bible has pronounced final judgment on someone, we have every right from God to communicate that truth. But if the Bible has not pronounced final judgment on any kind of individual doing anything or any group of people, we don't have a right to pronounce it. It's the Lord's job. And 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5 teaches us that he knows things we don't know. And therefore, he's the only one qualified to judge. But what we are called to do constantly is to use good discernment. And that's what Jesus means. And that's what Paul means. And that's what the Bible means when it tells us that we are to judge with righteous judgment. It means that there are lines that God has already drawn, boundaries that he's already laid down. And it is our role as faithful men and women of God to recognize those boundaries. So now let's talk about the Bible's doctrine, the New Testament doctrine of church discipline. Let's go back to the Gospel of Matthew again. Now chapter 18. Matthew 18, where we'll look at verses 15 through 20. Moreover, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. Notice the next word. Alone. My brothers and sisters, if someone has sinned against you, and you don't have enough love, forget courage, forget boldness. If you don't have enough love to go one-on-one -on -one to this brother or sister in Christ and take on this problem in that way, you might as well forgive them, give it to God, and let it go. Because Jesus says, alone. And that's the way things are to be handled as the first step when there's a problem between fellow believers in Christ. Listen to verse 16. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that, as the law says, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. I said last Sunday night, I'll say this briefly, no Christian, no Bible-believing person is authorized by God to receive an accusation against anyone for any reason, no matter how much in your gut you believe it's true, if you don't have two or three pieces of objective evidence. If you just got one person telling you something so, maybe it's so, maybe it's not. But as a Christian, you do not have God's permission to receive it. And there are so many Christians who've been ruined by one whisper, one word of gossip, one false witness born against a neighbor that like wildfire through dry stubble makes its way through the church before this man or woman's reputation is ruined and nobody has any facts about it at all. So brothers and sisters, that's wickedness. It's wickedness. That's why the Bible tells us we don't receive accusations without two or three witnesses. Every testimony must be corroborated. And so continuing then, in this passage, and if he refute, so if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. In other words, you don't regard him as a brother anymore. Church discipline has removed him or her, at least temporarily, 
from the fold. And we could go on, but let's go on now to Romans chapter 16. And I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul says, a very important statement near the end of that letter. So Romans chapter 16, we'll look at verses 17 and 18. Here the Apostle Paul, following the precedent that Jesus has set, says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For such, for those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Now how are you going to recognize if one is... Uh, is, is, is causing divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine. Well, the Matthew 18 process underlies and is superior to this passage. And this passage flows from it as its foundational principle. Now, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And there are other passages that bear on the subject of church discipline. But if you take these three that I put on the screen together, you're going to do things rightly. All right, so 2 Thessalonians 3, first of all, verse 6. Sorry, I was in 1 Thessalonians 3, beginning in verse 6. Um, Paul says, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Now again, what Romans 16 as well as 2 Thessalonians 3 are saying is that the apostolic word, the completed canon, New Testament teaching, gives us the boundaries that we're called to respect. And those in the context of the church, again, our passage in 1 Corinthians 5, but if anyone wears the name of brother or sister, if anyone is a baptized believer who has embraced repentance and is claiming that they're walking as disciples of Christ, anyone then that will not walk according, live according to the teachings of the New Testament is subject to, to the Matthew 18 process that may at times, unfortunately, sadly, but may at times lead to the church discipline of withdrawing from that brother or sister. Now, that's not all 2 Thessalonians 3 says, and there's an important word here in verses 14 and 15. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, which just means letter, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Verse 15, however, is very important. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now we find Jesus in his earthly ministry, eating with folks that the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees didn't think he ought to be eating with. Jesus was admonishing them as brothers, not violating or any commandment, but simply calling people who were interested in hearing the truth to repentance and because of that, many obeyed. Brothers and sisters, if someone has been withdrawn from by the church, it, please listen to me. I know there are situations that many of us know about in which the process of church discipline has been, has been taken by a church and has led to disastrous results. In almost every circumstance, it's because the Matthew 18 process has not been obeyed. I have seen church discipline practiced not only just by any church, but by this one successfully, exactly as the Word of God teaches, because the Matthew 18 process, accompanied by these other passages we've looked at, has been followed. Holy Spirit has given us this process. Don't you think he knows how to do things? Do things wrongly, it ain't going to work. 
do them right, it'll work in the best possible way. Now, I say this, brothers and sisters. We don't want to do it. Nobody wants to do it. If you find yourself in the company of a brother or sister that's been withdrawn from by, by a congregation, you need to respect that decision because it's the Lord's decision. It's the Lord's commandment. You can't rebel against it. You cannot rebel against the teachings of the Lord. Things will not work right if you pick and choose what passages to obey and what to reject. The whole of the Bible is God's word. And if you really are a follower of Jesus, you take it all. You take it all. You strive to understand it, to believe it, and obey it. And brothers and sisters, when you do, all will be well. This evening, if you are a member of the Lord's Church and you need our prayers for whatever reason, the front pews are open. We would be happy to offer prayer uh, to heaven in your behalf. And this evening, if you are a person of age and you understand right from wrong, you know you're accountable for your sins, you're concerned about your relationship with God. The Bible teaches a very clear plan of salvation. Confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Make the decision to turn from sinful and selfish living. Obey the commandment to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. The water is ready. It's already been used once today. Won't hurt to use it again. Amen? Amen. And you'll be added to the Lord's church. This evening, if you need to come, come as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.